On today's episode, we are going to talk about designing through the lens of policy. I'm Bon Ku, the host of Design Lab. It's a podcast that explores the intersection of design and health. Today's guest is Rick Griffith. He is a British West Indian collagist, writer, letterpress, printer, designer, and optimist future based in Denver, Colorado. As a designer, Rick works at the intersection of programming, policy, and production. He's a columnist for Print Magazine, the two-time programming chair for the AIGA National Conference. Rick's works are collected and exhibited worldwide and can be found in the permanent collections at the Denver Art Museum the Hamilton Wood Type and Printing Museum, and Columbia University's Rare Book and Manuscript Library, and the Tweed Museum at the University of Minnesota. Rick is the founder and partner with Deborah Johnson of the graphic design consultancy Matter. He's the designer behind the Black Astronaut Research Project, the Pledge for Spaces, and the Introductory Ethic for Designers and Other Thinking Persons. One of Rick's favorite long-term design projects is a bookstore for designers and revolutionaries. And Rick DJs a live internet radio show called Design to Kill every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So definitely check out Rick's bookstore. It can be found at shopatmatter.com. That's shop at M-A-T-T-E-R.com. There you can order a copy of my book, Health Design Thinking, that I co-wrote with Ellen Lupton and put in the discount code DESIGNLAB for 50% off. That's right. Go to shopatmatter.com, purchase Health Design Thinking, and put in a 50% discount code, which is DESIGNLAB. Check out the other books at his bookstore. He has an amazing collection. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at designlabpod.com. Check out the show notes from each week. Learn more about the guests. Look for links for related content from each episode. Rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars. Leave us a review. Tell us someone about the podcast. Now, here's my conversation with Rick Griffith. There's so many ways that we can start and thread this conversation. I've been reading about your work in print magazine, your, your writings there, watch some of your talks and I have some questions lined up. Uh, yeah, sure. What's your like impression? A- I'm always curious about people who might research me. Like, what do they get? Do they get my, my chaos life or do they get something else? What I love and appreciate is that it's hard to identify and make sense in the beginning, right? You are a collagist, letterpress printer, designer, optimist, futurist. And I I love that because a generalist in many different areas. And it's hard to put you in a box. And to me, those are the most exciting guests, most interesting people. And I love how you challenge some of these paradigms especially around design and how you're so passionate about design and critical of it. And what I can learn from you, there's so many things I can learn from you, even as, even in a practical sense of I'm a technician, I repair broken human bodies, but thinking about your lens of being a future optimist of applying design, the different forms of design, like policy is super fascinating to me. I think what's happened to me over the years is I developed 
a knack for going to like the root of a problem and realizing that like my discretion as I identify problems and articulate the nature of problems, my discretion about what the root problem is ends up being a source of authority, power, control. And I'm really interested in how that participates in the world. And so in my own life, you know, I've looked at the creation of policy much as a way of guiding my own action towards my own learning, my own education, my own understanding of the world, my own worldview. And then also in the participation in the lives of my children and my partners. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like it's a pretty tough needle to thread. Yeah. Saying that you understand yourself and your actions well enough to be a force for good in all these places. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying. That's my effort. Yeah. That's my goal. I think policy is a really interesting dimension of both my practice and my life, mm-hmm. in so much that it's like such a reliable quality. And if you become reliable with your own internal policy, your own sort of like, and it's turned into ethics, of course. Yeah. If you're reliable with your own policy and your own sort of behavior, then what happens is, is that you can start to look at things through that lens and you can start to apply all of that to Mm. the world that you live in. Like, Like you say that I'm hard to put in a box. I think the challenge that I create for design is is really just challenges to boxes in general. Mm. Like I like to challenge control. I like to challenge other people's sense of order. I like to challenge the things that people used to control other people, mm. policies. And so it's become a place of kind of like it's a dimension of my of my life, of, of mm. my work. It brings me closer to design. At a system level, it brings me closer to design as as I understand it, operating at really large formats. Yeah. I love that. Can I read something you wrote? Oh, sure. Print, print sure. magazine? Yeah, sure, sure. You write, some say that the system is in need of repair. And while that may be true, it's more likely that the systems are not broken. The systems are working exactly as they were designed by people whose hopes, beliefs, and fears are present and the policy that they create. This particularly resonated with me because everyone says the healthcare system is broken. I say the healthcare system is broken, but as being a physician working in a healthcare system, working in, in this large behemoth system that more and more I realized, no, it's perfectly designed to get the results that it was designed for. And so I I love that statement that you put out there. Other people have said that systems are working the way that they have been designed to work. But the part of it that I think that they don't share is the last part, which is it's made by people who have that the policies that they create are their expressions of fear. And I think that it's important to realize that Policies don't come out of systems, don't come out of thin air. They don't get made in the abstract. They get made by human beings. Mm. And and we are such human beings. We can participate in that. So a lot of people will call a system something that's out of their reach. I call a system something that we make. Mm. That 
particularly resonates with me around the healthcare system because there are so many inequities in the populations in America based upon the system that was designed. There's many populations, most of them are specifically non-white populations that have worse health outcomes. And because I think if you look back on the decades of policies that were designed, they were designed to not care for these populations in the in the US. And that's why we see these inequities happening over and over again and exacerbated by crises like the pandemic that we're having. So why not take that a moment, take that like a step further for a moment and say, by prioritizing the health and welfare of white people, what those systems have done is actively work against the health of black people Mm. and non-white people. And the only examples we really need are the the smallest ones because Mm. the smallest, most dangerous ones are examples that are kind of truth-telling outliers, right? Like Tuskegee. Mm. Yeah. Right? But if you can see it for a moment, and I think that my contribution to that conversation lands in something which I'm very much investigating as an artist and investigating now, which is the concept of anti-Blackness and how programs, policies, systems that have been constructed to serve largely white people or white serving organizations or whatever sort of acronyms that live out there to to talk about those, those systems that work at that scale and have worked that scale for so long. Mm -hmm. The reliable quotient of anti-Blackness shows up kind of all the time. Mm. And the job is, I mean, yes, we can acknowledge and recognize it. Mm -hmm. But I honestly think that the job and the work now is to interrogate what is it not doing so that the quotient of anti-Blackness could be reduced. Mm-hmm. So there are certain conditions, like anti-Blackness is like gravity. There are certain conditions that you can create to refute the effects of gravity, to defy the effects of gravity. One such thing is to get into a swimming pool. Mm. I know it sounds silly to say that, but the water is affected by gravity, but you are not, mm. right? So you are in some ways immune to gravity in that place. There's a whole different sort of density conversation that goes on when you're immersed in water and being heavier or more dense than the water and how you deal with buoyancy. Mm -hmm. But there are things that reduce the effects of gravity and there should be things that reduce the effects of anti-Blackness. Because anti-Blackness is a reality in this continent, for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then what we could do is think of actions, other systems, ways of reforming various structures and systems so that they have less capacity for anti-Blackness. And one of those things is to have people who are Black trained Mm -hmm. to care for the lives of Black people. Mm -hmm. And one of those things is not playing keep away with education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so when we think about the real source of the problem, the real source of the problem is that in other areas that hold anti-Blackness 
at the same scale and have been anti-Black for a really long time, they're playing keep away with the education that it takes mm-hmm. to create a cohort, multiple cohorts of Black doctors and Black physicians and Black surgeons and people who, in their very most natural state, would care for the lives of Black people yeah. in a way that has less reliable anti-blackness yeah there are about three percent of physicians that are black males and that number that stat has remained unchanged since the late 70s yeah sure things have either gotten worse or the same or the same for black people since the mid-60s you know like it hasn't gotten significantly better though we experience more convenience yeah and that no, this number is shocking to me because you know I'm an associate dean at my medical school, and the institutions. Everyone says, "Oh, we need to change this," but decades that number has remained the same, and we, and we right. know that patients and communities will get better care if they're taken care of by people who look like them or who have their shared experiences often is the case who in their natural state have no bias against them mm-hmm. you know or less likely to because we're all our bias is constructed by the world that we live in and black people are also trained to be anti-black so you know the generalization there is much more connected to the conditioning of people by the media that we live in and that black people can also express anti-blackness unless they're being trained actively against that But it's also to say that, you know, Black people can be the source of great relief and great joy Mm -hmm. and great healing for more than just Black people. And Black people are no less skilled or capable of being doctors than white people, Mm -hmm. you know. And so the keep away with education is to me ultimately the the barrier because none of, none of that changes unless more people are put through given the opportunity to be put into this transformative experience called being educated as a specialist in an area where they you know are focused and care deeply yeah, and yeah. and so those things those things stand in the way of that the other thing too that stands in the way of that is really being trained towards policies of in healthcare in America, trained towards policies that are legal, but still not just. Mm. And I think that that's kind of like when someone says that we're making a good enough bagel, we're making a bagel that everyone will eat mm-hmm. versus the idea of making an authentic New York City bagel that like is, you know, an artisan bagel that people <laughs> deserve. Someone says that we have to make a good enough bagel that everyone will eat anyway and not complain about. I Uh think that, you know, it just depends on who you're listening to, who complains and who doesn't complain, right? Uh People people who care about artisan bagels complain about crappy bagels all the time. But also the policy and the idea that there are protocols in healthcare that are good enough Mm. instead of policies and protocols that interact with people in more deep ways. I had two doctor's appointments before I came out here because I'm I'm going to be here for a few months. And 
both of those doctors told me, okay, yeah, well, our time is up now. They give me 15 <laughs> minutes to meet with you and we've spent that long. And I was like, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, like, thank you for spending all the 15 minutes with me. And that was awesome. And I'll see you later. That's not much of a relationship. We talk a lot about the doctor patient relationship, but when you put that constraint of uh, this relationship is going to be a 15 minute one, it leaves some people hurt. Well, and the, the <laughs> turnover in my plan is so strong that like, I think I've met with the same doctor twice in 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I want to follow this thread of how systems are designed because in that same article, you wrote something about empathy that I thought was provocative. You said empathy in design operates the same way charity works in government, but you make a call for unburdening the designer from empathy. Can you unpack that? Yeah, sure. Not charity in government, but charity in contrast to good policy in government, right? Mm -hmm. So a good example would be the granny gets help to cross the road from a Boy Scout. And that is a voluntary action from a Boy Scout. And the reason why is because there's no curb cut and granny's got to take those like, you know, two and a half foot long legs, those little legs and like go down six or seven inches and granny's going to trip and fall. So the Boy Scout stands at the curb, extends their arm, helps granny cross the road, and then helps granny get up the other side without the curb cut. Mm. This act of charity is a perfect act of charity in so many levels. And yet we've decided that the better version of that is to create a curb cut for granny and for all other people that are facing disability or facing a differently abled body. Mm -hmm. And so there is some wisdom in the idea that now the standard is to curb cut all crosswalks, right? Mm -hmm. So in the same way, empathy is a great thing, right? Mm -hmm. But the problem with empathy and the difference between empathy and helping an old lady across the street is empathy requires a certain amount of training. Like good empathy is not, it's not natural and perfect. It's trainable and therefore something that has is, exists on a spectrum of skills. Mm. So when designers are asked to be empathetic, they are operating from their own lives, their own centered lives. And because the largest quantity of designers are white, what you find yourself experiencing is a version of white empathy mm. that is imperfect. And I'm not against something that's imperfect, but... When there's so much at stake, when we're designing so many things, mm -hmm. I think that what you'd want to do is to start looking at standards and not say what is a minimal viable product, right? Mm -hmm. But what you want to do is like, what is the product that protects its users? Mm -hmm. What is a product that cares about its users and cares about the quality of their lives? And that is a different kind of empathy. That's a that's a kind of agape. That is a kind mm -hmm. of experience that where there is a care for your fellow human mm -hmm. that is deeper than the kind of empathy that you can put into a UX UI design course. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
it's an amateur act performed imperfectly and ultimately not performed at all. So unburdening designers from that requirement and having design leads work on qualities and standards mm. of understanding users and understanding those personas and being deliberately focused on being trained to understand their needs and understand their health and their their caring mm. is probably better than burdening a visual graphic designer or burdening a UX UI designer with that kind of care. Yeah. It's something that we try to do in, in medical education too when we're training physicians to care for the patient at the bedside and, and the communities where, where they come from. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel it's going? Not too great because of the stats that we had before. We're producing the same type of doctors that we did decades ago. Uh, aside from that, the gender inequity improved. You know, medical schools were only for male doctors and now their enrollment is 50-50 for female and male medical students, but there are many cultures and ethnicities that aren't representative of the demographics of our country. Yeah. I mean, both of my doctors that I saw last week were two weeks ago were female and they were honest enough to tell me the constraints of our relationship. I saw a couple <laughs> of male doctors before that and they were not, they were just like, Hey, cool. Later. I'm like, okay, <laughs> see you later, doc. And then I had to catch him walking the hallway again with my door open. I'd be like, hey, I got one more question. He was like, oh, crap. You know, and he comes back in the room. He's like, what? What's up? And I'm like, I ask him another question. He's like, that's the answer. Bye-bye. And he, you know, like takes a walk. I mean, my mother was an RN for most of her life. Uh-huh. She was a, what we would call a candy striper for her young life. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. And she was medically trained all through her life. She retired and then eventually died. But the, you know, the experience I have through my mother about like sort of the healthcare systems in, in two countries, at least, is one where, you know, like she never complained about the work and she never did a profound amount of analysis on the protocols that she was asked to execute upon. But Mm -hmm. without going to a hospital. And so, you know, like remedies and first aid and, you know, you like, I'm the one that looks at something and says, nah, no stitches, scars, but no stitches, you know, <laughs> you know, like, like that's my way of being in my, in the life of my family is like, I'm going to call that. And that's not a visit. <laughs> Which is funny. But, you know, it's also like, who wants to be a part of a system that doesn't acknowledge you or doesn't care about you or yeah. cares more about its, the scale of its bureaucracy than it does about your care, mm. you know? And that's ultimately what happens. Yeah. When systems get really, really big, then they have all these gatekeeping systems that are installed around them. Yeah. And those gatekeeping systems are things that care for the bureaucracy and they care for the scale of, of its action. And then, you know, it stops being the thing that it was supposed to do, or at least it's not its primary concern, but it's concerned with its own perseverance. It wants to still exist regardless of whatever policy comes from the federal government or the state government or whatever funding source it, it relies upon. Mm -hmm. And that's, I suppose, part of the problem in healthcare from my perspective. Mm -hmm. It spends too much money protecting itself and not enough money doing the work. Yeah.
Well, there are stakeholders in the ecosystem that are making a lot of money by having the system operate in its current state. And so it's hard to pull all those different levers because those winners will end up losing revenue if the system were to change. Yeah, yeah. And to somebody that's bad, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) See, to me, that's weird because I've always thought of healthcare as the scale of like it's a business that is the size of of only a business a country should run mm-hmm. you know like in the UK we have the inland revenue which is in the US it's called the IRS mm-hmm. the IRS is run by the United States it's a federal organization it's a program that runs this thing that's tax yeah. collection and tax rebates and whatever and it's it's Regardless of what you want to say about it, it's a big system. It's fairly sophisticated and it does a lot of work. Yeah. It gives out numbers, right? It gives out social security numbers. It does all sorts of things. So, but somewhere between the Social Security Administration and the IRS, there's enormous systems. And to me, adding something like healthcare, right? Not mm-hmm. just to the financial part of it, but actually adding like healthcare to it, maybe. The VA is a good model for looking at that. Mm -hmm. You know, it should be the thing that helps lubricate all three of them. Mm -hmm. Like you have this one number, this one identity, and it should work fluidly between tax collection and care. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the future, there's all sorts of names for this multi-pass or Uh the show me card or whatever, you know, like in all these various science fiction futures, uh-huh. we have this identification tool. We know what it is. Mm. But in other countries too, like in Portugal or in the UK, national health stuff is pretty much, you know, it's either at risk or it's thriving, but, yeah. but it exists. Mm-hmm. But it totally exists. In Germany, it exists. I think we have largely the most the most in common with the German healthcare system. Mm. As also for scale, you know, it's one of the larger ones. And they have a very, very low cost to having someone stay in a hospital. Mm-hmm. Really, really low cost to that. Yep. People don't get poor going to hospitals. Yep. Medical bills are the number one cause, I think, of bankruptcy in the yep. U.S. still. You don't think that has anything to do with the reluctance of people to participate in it and then the ultimate like gouging of costs that <laughs> happens through HMOs and systems that <laughs> employ doctors and that why it turns into a 15 minute meeting. <laughs> you should teach a class on healthcare policy. You, I, I, I love I love your perspective there. <laughs> well, <laughs> what I'm getting at, and of course by laughing, I don't mean to take light of it, but what I'm getting at is sometimes the idea that my brain connects a lot of things. Yeah. And whether or not and whether or not it's completely accurate, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that it's a feeling, it's an intuition that by affecting one thing, we can positively affect another. Mm-hmm. And so if we deploy that intuition from black and brown and, and people of color, if we deploy that intuition across various systems, we can actually, and I don't like the, to use the word disrupt, so I won't, but we can actually change those systems. Yeah. And what I mean by change is I mean... The simplest of change would be to recognize and acknowledge gatekeepers Mm -hmm. and train them to gatekeep gates open. Mm. Because a gate has positions that are open and closed. Mm -hmm. And 
gatekeepers are largely talked about as people who keep things closed. But mm. I believe that gatekeepers are necessary. They should be trained, though, to make things open. Mm. I'm curious about your thoughts on designers being good problem solvers. Is that true? And if it's true, why is that? Are there some principles about design that make designers better problem solvers than others? Because I think healthcare can benefit from designers working in the industry to improve it. Yeah, but but what's interesting about design and how it's taught in America and also other places too, but it's housed in the school of art and art history mm -hmm. and it has a relationship with art making it has a relationship with studio art and it doesn't necessarily bear a relationship until graduate school or beyond it doesn't really like have a relationship with problem solving as it relates to other problems that are not visual mm -hmm. <laughs> you know like it doesn't require that the students of design understand their subject well enough to participate in critical design thinking around mm -hmm. their speciality. The speciality oftentimes provides the expert. Mm -hmm. And so expert healthcare thinkers becoming designers is more probable and in some ways more useful mm. to the healthcare industry than it is to take visual designers or people who've been trained as visual designers to train them to understand the problems of healthcare better and more deeply. Mm. Graphic designers are problem solvers, they're visual problem solvers. You're trained as a graphic designer? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm, I'm self-trained in that regard. Uh -huh. But the... Designers are the kind of problem solvers that see problems. Like if someone is a woman, identifies as a woman and recognizes and understands various either patriarchal or misogynistic behaviors in their in their atmosphere, mm. you know, part of their problem space is how to be acknowledged. Mm. And if someone's a black person, works very similarly, brown person, et cetera they identify what is and is not a problem. Mm. Mm. So the bigger, the more expansive the worldview of the designer, particularly as it relates to undergrad, and then of course, the area of specialization for graduate school and beyond, the larger the worldview, the larger like sort of reasoning they have mm. or things that they encounter, which they decide to call problems, mm. you know? And it's that reasoning, the flexing of that reasoning over various types of problems mm -hmm. that makes great designers. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at the modes of solving problems, not just the problems themselves. They're able to kind of take recipes, if you will. Like design thinking is one such recipe mm -hmm. for how to solve problems in multiple verticals, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Is it effective? Well, you know, yes, if you see the problem the way that design thinking kind of expresses the various recipes. I think that like various types of design thinking have got great ideas built into them, but sometimes it's the human being that's acting on those ideas that gives it dimension and strength and gives 
those ideas power and authority in the future. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, the person's discretion defines the problem. Mm. So they're kind of flat and open. And if you have largely white people defining these problems, then they don't seem to see the problems of black and brown and, and people of color or women mm. and so on and so forth, but they can be trained to see that, or they can also participate in that. Mm. Rick, I love you, what you said at the beginning of that, of healthcare people getting into design maybe more effective because that validates my existence of, yeah, of I have no training in design at all, but I have found design much later on in my career and and saw that what well, was like, whoa, we could apply this sort of framework to the healthcare space. And I know the problems really well. And so it really was able to unlock some creativity in trying to solve problems for me in a way that I have never experienced before. And yeah, that's cool stuff. Yeah. And I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on how does design help us to be more creative and why is creativity important in solving problems because i'm always trying to talk to my my world of medical people saying hey creativity is very important to physicians to our field to solve these really hard problems that we're facing but it's not taught in medical school yeah i mean i'll start by saying that this week, I specifically challenged teaching art design as a creative practice. Oh, yeah. You're, you're teaching a new class, correct? I'm right teaching now? a class called Design History for Now. And this week, I challenged the idea that we would teach it using pedagogy and that we would move from pedagogy through andragogy to hudagogy and that we would attempt this very dangerous mission, this like sort of... Again, I think I defined it as being imperfect and dangerous journey away from pedagogy into andragogy into hudagogy, which is, you know, you have to explain own... all these terms. <laughs> but the terms explain themselves as a journey from having teacher led, teacher focused learning to having learner focused learning. Got it. Okay. And learner-focused learning over here is based on your objectives. Mm -hmm. And teacher-focused learning over here is based on what the teacher believes is appropriate and good for you. Got it. And there's very little leadership on the part of the student over here in pedagogy. Mm -hmm. And over here in hudagogy, it is self-directed, largely self-directed. The reason why I'm trying to decenter the teacher is because I believe that in the teaching of creative acts, uh -huh. that we really need to center ourselves on the experience of the learner and the intuition of the learner and help that learner find their own way of being and way mm -hmm. of making. Mm -hmm. And that is our greatest gift to them is to give them a place to experiment with who they are and who they will become. Mm -hmm. But in medical school, I imagine, and this is one of the examples that I gave them, I said, well, I imagine that over here in science and in you know elementary school, these are mm -hmm. two places where pedagogy works just great. And the reason why is because all science is based in some part of the science of the person that came before you. And ultimately, mm -hmm. all teachers as scientists become teachers through your entire 
lineage. Like mm-hmm. you understand yourself from the teachings of these principles, which are done by people. Mm-hmm. And, and so pedagogy is a great place for the teaching of science and it should probably stay there. Yeah. But you're talking about teaching creativity and I actually sort of hold that thought in stasis for a moment to say teaching people who have an upbringing through pedagogy, mm-hmm. teaching them self-criticism and teaching them to think of the objectives of their work as being sort of independent of the tools that they work with. Mm-hmm. Like it's not necessarily creativity, but it is a kind of disassociation. Mm taking your sort of desired outcomes and isolating them for a moment to figure out what creates that instead of taking your resources and then seeing how good an outcome you can create from these limited resources, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. They're both types of design for sure, but one of them centers the outcome (laughs) and the other one centers the use of resources, both of which I'm a fan of. I think what you're talking about is teaching people these two dimensions yeah. to design and to the critical challenge of healthcare systems and say, we're designing a healthcare system. Yeah. We're also designing outcomes for human beings. And you need it to be in some places, you need the longitudinal sort of aspect of creativity to participate. Yeah. And in some places, you need the training and the pedagogy over here to participate in it in a very precise kind of way. Yeah. So almost doctors become resources instead Mm -hmm. of creative people. And you have to figure out, I don't have the answers to this because I don't have enough SME on this, but you have to figure out how these human beings show up, Mm. whether they show up as participants in the system or whether they show up as authors of a system that you know builds and breaks down every time yeah. a, a customer shows up mm-hmm. you know in a bakery in a bookstore in a retail environment the system builds around the customer the minute the customer shows up and mm-hmm. you have to ask a series of questions to get them what they need mm-hmm. you have to be able to do that on scale or you have to be able to do that in not at scale but it's all mm-hmm. circumstantial Like the way that we've been trained to take care of customers in retail, the way that I train my staff, because I own a bookstore, Mm -hmm. is to say, we're not in the bookselling business, we're in the acknowledgement business. Mm. Get someone to tell you their story, and you can put them in touch with the resource that they need. Mm. That's it. Mm. That's it. There's so many different threads here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that it's sparking a lot for you. I want to go to your bio, you say you're an optimist futurist. Right. And how are you an optimist? And oh gosh. What what does a futurist mean? Futurist means a lot of things. I think first of all, how am I an optimist? My partner and I both say it's too late to be a pessimist. Mm. It's too late. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I love we that. We have to energetically move this forward. We have to move this forward. We say, like, if we're going to do this, then we should really just do this. And that is an energy. And so optimism as a particular kind of energy 
is really important to us in the various projects that we do. And it's really important to the way that we participate with other people and acknowledge them and, and move this, this life forward. We're both widows. And so, and we were both widows at a relatively young age. And so in our combining of our work and our love and our, and our caring for each other and our families, what's happened is, is that we have experienced some grief and some loss and so of our children and us modeling life moving forward and us modeling optimism in spite of those experiences was and continues to be part of our work and we do that in part for all for all widows or for all people who have lost somebody or anyone who's experienced tragedy you know we kind of put ourselves out there and be like we're okay with that we're yeah. okay with holding space for that kind of grief or we're okay with holding space for that kind of experience the futurist part is you know i'm studying a lot of futurists hmm. I'm putting myself in the space that they have created, like the near future laboratory. And I'm feeling connected to the idea that designers are flinging their atoms and their actions into the future. Mm -hmm. And I do this thing where I say the present has already happened. It's already happened, man. So whatever future and particularly as I'm teaching history right now, whatever future we're creating right now is also the history that people will encounter. Mm. And so I'm mindful of all of those actions as we kind of echo ourselves forward mm -hmm. and as we present ourselves in the present for future activity. Mm. My version of futurist is a person who has an awareness of the future that I am creating, mm -hmm. as well as the interaction with various systems that have not created all their futures yet. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm optimistically engaging with systems that I believe that I could change something. And of course, people say things like one person at a time. I'm like, you know, 18 to 20 something people at a time, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in the hundred person at a time if I'm speaking, you know, like I want to change as many minds as possible in the time that I have with the audience that I have. Yeah. And I'm not trying to change their minds towards some sort of thought, like some specific kind of thought. I'm trying to change the dimensions that they see mm -hmm. in the thoughts that they have because them trusting their intuitions the way that I trust mine mm -hmm. might create the kind of deliberate and forceful action on systems that we already have that mm. would change them. Mm. So I'm just trying to encourage people to participate and to look at change as their work. Yeah. I think the healthcare system can benefit from some of these futuring mindsets because those of us who work in this system, we just respond to some of these dumpster fires that we need to put out on a daily basis. And there is not that space to think beyond the everyday reality that we experience being in the system. Does that make sense? That it's hard to imagine a better system than it is than we're currently in right now. And, yeah. and I think because of that, a lot of us who work in healthcare are very pessimistic, jaded, and have no optimism. 
Yeah, but the problem with that isn't whether or not there is a better system, whether or not you've exhausted the resources to make the best of what you have, because that can't possibly be true, especially in a for-profit system. The problem with that is something like, let's use an eclipse as a metaphor for a moment. Mm -hmm. You know, if the Earth was constantly casting a shadow on the moon, Mm -hmm. you would never know there was a moon. And so your positionality and the positionality of other healthcare professionals who are either practicing or not practicing design, mm-hmm. you know, your positionality has a kind of viewpoint that benefits a particular kind of action without knowing whether there's a moon or not. Mm. And other people have a perspective that knows that this eclipse is temporary you know, and has an awareness of this thing called the moon and so on and so forth. Like, I honestly think it's about perspective, positionality, worldview, mm-hmm. the number of things that participate and profit, they all participate in the system not being better. Mm. They all give permission for the system to not be better. Mm. And by doing that, what happens is, is that you're not designing at all. Mm. Again, it's back to this sort of this idea that a minimal viable or minimal lovable product is actually the thing that people want when it's not the thing that people want. It's just the thing that you know how to make. Mm. And I think that that's a perspective that creates a particular kind of product. Yeah. I have one more final question that we've been asking our guests is if a listener were to visit you, where would you take them out to eat? Depends. Would it be in Portugal? Would it be in New York? Or would it be in Denver? Your choice. Well, why don't we make it your choice since you're the person who's visiting? Let's do New York. Yeah, because that's close by me. And only if you promise to make it happen. My eldest daughter, who keeps me in touch with all new things that are in New York, I met her mother in New York and I came from New York to Colorado. My eldest daughter has got a couple of really nice reservations set up for us when I come visit her in a couple of weeks. The one counter that has been feeding my family for 20-something years is called B&H Dairy, and it's a kosher dairy breakfast and lunch counter in the East Village that's been around for a long time, and I adore that place, and they have challah toast, Mm. so... You know, you get your two eggs over easy with potatoes, and there's no meat there, of course. It's a kosher dairy place. Uh-huh. But you can get challah as your toast instead of wheat bread or white bread or whatever. It's challah. And that's <laughs> one of the defining features of it besides the Wednesday borscht, which is impeccable. So, yeah, I'd take you to B&H Dairy on 2nd Avenue between 7th and 8th. I love that. And we'll, we'll put a link in, in the show notes there. Established in 1938. I wrote down I wrote down so many notes here. My my brain is just like buzzing. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to eat something now and digest what you said for hours. I could talk to you forever, but I know you're busy and I wanna be respectful of your time. But Rick, thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you asking me to be here. It's very kind. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rick. Follow him on Instagram at R-I-C-K-G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H. And don't forget to buy a copy of Health Design Thinking at Rick's bookstore, shopatmatter.com. 50% discount code is Design Lab. 
Today's episode was produced by Rob Puglisi, editing by Fernando Carreros, and our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.